Waltzing Around with Murder, a Senior Sleuth Mystery, Book One. Maureen Fisher. Preview. Seeky, I yelled out the world, nearly neighing, went on and on. Nothing. Something was terribly wrong. Lancelot reared up, pulled the air, and crashed down again. The still door opened, swung wide, open, swung open. The fact that I didn't have a coronary in the spot testified to my heart's excellent health. With Zeke's appearance in the doorway, instinct told me to remain silent. He grunted a little while backing out of the stall. I could tell he was dragging something, something limp and heavy. Once in the corridor, he gently lowered his load and straightened his face, a mask of shock, as he ran his fingers through his hair. I noticed his hand shook. I was too late to save him, he muttered in a tightened voice. I studied in the object and shuddered. It was a man, a man who was either unconscious or dead. His head was turned away from me. My throat tightened. Oh, Ziki, I said softly. His eyes vacant and haunted. He used an arm to swipe sweat off his forehead before closing his stall door. When he silently averted his glaze and crouched beside the body, I glanced again at the still form, my heart galloping in my chest. That's Lux, Lux, Lux Crocs, isn't it? I clenched my fists, dimly where my nails digging into tender flesh. Seeking nodded. My heart bounced against my chest. Is he? I stopped talking. Seeking checked Lucas' pulse while I shifted from one foot to another. Seconds ticked by until he stood up, stood and faced me, expression grin. Yep, he's dead. Chapter One. Last chance for success. It all began three days ago earlier. I, Abby Fruster, sat in my office staring at our annual profit and loss statement, daunted by the prospect of financial ruin. I grabbed my squishy stress ball and gave it several killer squeezes. Unless we increase our revenues, Grizzly Clutch Guest Ranch was toast. Worse, my two sisters and I would be collateral damage or an age where most sane people contemplate retirement. In an attempt to lower my blood pressure, I stretched and glazed out the window at the long ridges and rolling terrain of the Alberta foothills. How could I leave this vast beauty? The answer was, I couldn't and wouldn't. We desperately needed five-star reviews. Our weak, long, equine breeding symposium was our only hope. Scouring, I checked the use of stress ball at my office door. It simultaneously flew open. The door bounced off my younger sister's forehead. Hey, Dobby, she said, grabbing her eyebrow. What the fitch? Abby, sorry, I said. A little advice. Try knocking. A stainless clogging cloud of channel number five filled my office. She tivered inside on her four-inch spikes. Ridiculous shoes for sixty-two-year-old woman. Brilliant flowers splashing the plus-size mumu top, which should have hung loose. Instead, it clung like shrink wrap to quadruple D boobs before encasing a bungling muffin top and belly porch. She had the hem landed a scant inch above clutch level. Hmm, I figured that you'd be in a decent mood since you've been holed up here for hours with your best friends, numbers and spreadsheets. Dobie's eyes lit up as she zeroed in on the low filing cabinet where I stashed a plate of Chef Armin's cookies. Telling me myself they were for visitors, not myself. 
She selected an oatmeal raisin and bit down. I rolled my eyes. Don't stand on ceremony. Help yourself. No mouthful of crumbs, she replied. Don't mind if I do. And clammed the rest of the cookie into her mouth, bending them to synchronize the plate. She presented me with a disturbing view. She encased her plump legs in black stocking leggings, her feet as reckless as stuffing a bucking heifer down a drain pipe. Her queen-sized butt cheeks bulged, stringing away for thin fabric in alarming matter, manner. Before she retired, Dobie had accumulated years of experience in the food industry, along with an average, avid interest in food. She knew her beverages, especially the alcoholic kind. Her talents combined with her people skills earned her the dual titles of food and beverage manager, plus head of guest services and housekeeping. Straightening, she faced me, giving my eyeballs a chance to heal, holding two thin thumbprint cookies on a napkin. She minced over to a visitor's chair and parked herself. Nice outfit, I said, cringing in my eye-popping get-up. Huh? Wish I could say the same for yours. John dresses like a nun. Loosen up a bit, sis. Where's something snappy? She topped in another cookie. I know I jab up my work attire. Hey, I look no nonsense look. I like the no nonsense look on button up blouse and tailored trousers. So sue me. I look elegant and professional. Why so grumpy? I spent the better part of my glorious May morning studying spreadsheets, spread bottom line, with deep financial trouble. Our survival hangs on next week's horse breeding sensorium. It's going to be a success. Let's retract a lot more guests. We default our loan in the bank we possess. Grizzly Gulch. I gave her a hard set. I don't know about you, but I'm too old to become a bag lady. That's, that's that bad? She asked us, asked around a mouthful of crumbs. I thought of losing Grizzly Gulch, a sharp pain, knife between my shoulder blades. Today is a two year anniversary of Uncle Benny's passing. I bought, I, I fought down an unexpected burst of emotion. Uncle Bunny left the three of us all his worldly goods, including Gulch, Grizzly Gulch, Cusk Ranch. Don't go all weeping on me, Derby raised a cookie in the air. Here's our, our, here's our, here's our favourite colonel, Uncle. He was sure bit he quote happy. Hey, when they found him, his feet were in his boots and his high quarters, firmly lodged in ATV's heated seat. He was doing what he loved best, riding fences in Grizzly Gulch, Northwest Passage. I gave this watery smile, my sister a knack for putting things to protective. Initially, owing and operating a dude ranch in the foothills of Canadian Rockies, a sanded idyllic. Two years, a ton of revelations later, the reality of running a bunny pit like Grizzly Gulch missed the mark by a country mile. We got carried away with our revelations, I said. The rap race to convert a run-down Jude ranch in a deluxe vacant destination overstretched our finances, and that's putting it mildly. The revelation will pay for themselves. Our place is fabulous. I couldn't help but agree. We made massive changes. Hey, it'll be fine, Judy assured me. Our foster sisters are never getting up. We'll never end up the bag ladies. The three of us survived a whole lot worse, a cash flow problem. Yeah, we survived a differential childhood in my case, a differential to edit all, emerging as survivors. Dodi shifted a chair, a sole sign she had more to say. For placing my forearms on the, the desk, leaning forward, a scrutinized her face. Okay, enough, but our money worries. What brings you to my office and when you high, why, when you high maintenance chefs and historical housekeeping staff to manage? I may 
This may knock your brow off, so please stay calm, said. My brother special spiked him with a red light zone. Of course, I replied. Clara has to come, take a couple of weeks' personal leave, maybe. More. My tongue glued to the roof of my mouth. Clara was the eldest, youngest of the foster sisters. Was widowed twenty years at age forty. She had terrible charged person skills, a kind of heart in the world. She also produced Wendy, our beloved niece. Because of Clara's ability to interact with guests without getting up their noses, she holds the vital position of events manager as Killy in charge, and currently in charge of a horse breeding sodorium. Although not in the job description, she also smooths any feathers Domi and I have may raffled. I shook my head. No way. As the impact of snacking, I increase the volume. Claire handles all the rinse. She can't give up, leave us high and dry two days before sedarium. I'm hungry. Doby stood and eyed the cookies. I need a stack to tide me over. Since my sister's next move, I averted my eyes. While she bent down to make another selection, she scoffed down more before returning to her chair. And a mouthful cookie muffled her next words. I made out. Clara has already packed a book to her fight to Calgary, writing notes for you as we speak. I tried not to hyperventilate. When can possibly be more important than the Simisporium and our last chance to save the ranch? At that point, Claire burst into the office. Her curly grey hair, normally elegant, scrapped into a messy ponytail. She raggled a rolling staircase, suitcase behind her and stopped long before enough to blurt. Wendy needs me. I'm going to as soon as Eric returns from Paris. I left you notes about this volume. She flung a yellow pad covered with the barely legible handwriting on my desk and whipped her suitcase around to flee. Stop! Panic! Give my command that sky is falling quality. What happened? Wendy was Claire's daughter and no, my beloved niece who lived in the web of Vancouver. Clarence actually stopped a horn blared outside. What's wrong? Where are you going? You can't leave it like, like this. The honking grew even more insistent. Claire took the details off her fingers. When he was thrown off her horse, hubby's gone for two weeks, kids are frantic, and so the neighbours. I took them in, got the go, and she left. In my, in my distress, I actually had these had a word no nice woman repeats. Two, actually, I restrained myself. Claire was insisted, Dobie and I stopped splashing the big F around. It's funny how guests don't appreciate staff who curse a blue streak. Seeing the wisdom of her objection, we agreed to stop swearing. Remembering our pack, I settled on, oh, holy moly, that's terrible. I hope Wendy's okay. I phoned Clara, Clara tomorrow. Clara tomorrow, in relaxed motion. I reached out to grab a cookie and popped half a tin. Bit half of it into my mouth. Beneath a married skies by a Minitsky sky. This book is about discovering and being discovered. It's a collection of writing about burying one's heart. Beneath a myriad of skies, it's about diving into caves of ice, or pits of ice, pits of fire, basking in the warmth of a lie to protect the heart, embracing bitter truths, indulging on guilty pleasures, believing without tangible evidence, and trusting only confident beliefs. Take your end to read and explore, 
because every page tells a different story, every turn a different leaf. To the one who thought obliviation, obliviation would be my saving grace, to you who sees the truth that lies deep within me, and to the one who's going to leaf through the pages, may not you find consolation, if not a friend of your mind. May you find refuge, if not an escape. May you find a peace of yourself, if you're not, a soul, if you're not your soul's companion. Above all, you may find a relief of a heart. About the ghost inside myself. Someone keeps waking, walking in my memories. As he gently yet firmly held my shoulders, he nudged me to his eyes. As I searched to my face for meanings, he gently planted his lips on my brows. Soothing the worry creases, his gaze held me as his strength he gave, and without a word saying, I am here, you will be all right. As he comfortably gazed into my anxious eyes, it was if he is drowning in all my fears. He warmly gazed into my teary eyes, as if my soul embraced. He stood there staring into the depths of me. These fragments of recollections are vivid as memories plague me. He haunts me on my waking moments. He comes to me in my slumbers. My very, my very every moment is filled with his ghostly presence, keeping his ghost alive, a promise, regret, punishment. Still I beg him to come. Because no matter how painful the ache of longing is, I have come to hesitate to be thankful. I've come to realise to be thankful. Believe that he at last lives in my memories, that at least haunts me in my dreams, that there is still a single thing that brings him to me. And because he is the only one who claim calm every storm inside me, his memory remains. Inventable surrender, powerless to resist, your biting hips, rendered helpless, not to thrust your body, that is, aching to be filled, you will seduce my mind, my body eventually surrenders into sheer obliviation. No Looking Back by Lana Saunders Diggins Introduction This book which has been a long time coming. I have thought about writing so often. I've tried to start several times, but just could not get it, get into it. Ever since, having read Dust Dreams, living the outbreak, published and released, having a lot of people ask me about my own education, I decided finally that time is right. Basically, no looking back is about, just about the complete opposite. It's about looking back, looking back at my secondary school days, all six years of them, and my memories from those years, which were awful. In the years since leaving school in 1972, I often had nightmares, and I certainly cannot tell them dreams, not even bad dreams, but trying to leave that, leave the place, trying to leave that school for good, even for the same reason in a dream. I've only gone back for a very short time, a week or a month or whatever. I still have problems with leaving. I know I do eventually get through that time, thinking it's only temporary. I'm about to leave again. It's time for good. Most people I knew were wonderful memories of the school days, or thrilled when reunions were announced. 
Not me. I intended one reunion that's that's about twenty years ago, and I decided never again. Not not saying that I didn't enjoy it. I did, to a limit. I didn't really want to accept and attend it, but did. Out of curiosity, most of the girls I saw reunion were pleasant enough. All except a, a few were day girls or day bugs, as we used to call them. I hate to think that they called us. They they did they. they, they did talk to me. We were nice. I even talked with a couple of the boarders. We were also okay. We weren't friends at school. But years have passed and most of us have grown up and matured. But there was one particular boarder for whom I would never be friends. She disliked me from the outset. That has never changed. It's no loss to me. But I'm interested to see how we would react towards me at a reunion. I saw her across the room and thinking that the other couple of the boarders had already spoken with were pleasant. I thought I'd try to approach her see what happened. She saw me turn coming and turned on the spot, walking the other way. A quick look she gave me, even though I smiled at her. It was a real smile. Well, let's just say it's no loss. We're never be friends. And yes, I was bullied, mainly verbally, but believe me, that hurt too. Sometimes it more than physical bullying. About school. Yes, I... I did have an awful time during my six years in a border, and at school, I do not blame school or staff for a minute. I was, it was a very good school, certainly one of the oldest and the best in the city, but most of the boarding schools were, as some still are, full of history, including mine, something of which they should be extremely proud. Being bullied and disliked as much as I was from the go to what though wasn't pleasant. I couldn't wish it on anyone, particularly as a boarder. There's no escape. Most of mine was verbal, but a couple of physical incidents have been described a little more in the relevant chapters. And yes, I did complain. Once this occurred back in, back in the 60s and 70s, being bullied, before bullying and light were really acknowledged. But I did eventually complain to a couple of the staff members, but responding with suggestion I should get try hard. Hard to get along with the other girls. Okay, that wasn't going to work. I knew it, so I didn't help. I also tried to tell him, tell my parents, just once, and was ignored. These days, bullying is acknowledged and taken very seriously, and usually, not always, acted upon. Our meals at school were lovely. We must have had kitchens off to do the cooking, but I do remember being on the roaster on dishes. I think it was a help yourself. A little savoury days between the kitchen and the dining room. We used to have good old-fashioned faithful roast, lamb, pork and chicken. On Friday nights, it was a real treat, even if it happened, even if it happened every week. I would not have missed for anything, even one particular Friday, when my mouth was full of ulcers. I had sore throat, pimples in my mouth, cold sores all over my lips. There's no way I was, I was not going to eat that roast. I put up with the pain, I was agony. I've always used salt, and as far as I was concerned, that what's a roast about salt and gravy, especially homemade gravy? Although I think the gravy we had in our roast at school was from a packet, given the number of girls they had to feed. Nevertheless, to say the salt only aggravated the pain, they're still at. Our sweets, puddings, desserts were yummy too. Neither that or we were just too plain hungry not to eat. I had no idea whether we had any vegan, vegetarians or vegans amongst us. They were not catered for. 
if they were. Acknowledgements. To acknowledge anyone for the writing of this book is something I am sure about. I really don't know who's to acknowledge, or indeed, if anyone should be acknowledged. It's not exactly a pleasant book. I hope readers might realise if you, if they have been bullied, or still are, just attending boarding school, and with unpleasant memories, they are not alone. Here, thanks must go to my daughter for her unbiased editing. My childhood is out back. I have very happy memories of my childhood. Growing up from our family station, it was different, not that I realised it then. I think I figured all the children that lived in the country had similar childhoods, didn't they? No, they didn't. Even an occasional trip to the city and seeing other children, May, one, one or two cousins, it never occurred to me that their childhood was different than mine. Or should I say, perhaps mine was a different one. As I found out a few days later, when everything started to change, I was sent down to boarding school. There's no idea how old a person usually is when their memory starts to kick in. But the earliest mind is one of the staying the same some of our neighbours so staying with some of our neighbours on their station. It was my fifth birthday, actually I'm not sure, but that was true for for reason, for some reason. Every time I have thought about this, the age of five keeps popping up, so I'm sticking with it. Mum and my dad have gone to Melbourne for the Commonwealth Games. My brother and my next one up, I stayed with my aunt and uncle, not blood relations, on this station, and mentioned above. I have a photo, good old black and white, my brother and me sitting on the lawn, surrounded by my parents. I was in my moo I think that's the proper name for it, but i never known. It's that, so I stick to moo Being raised in the outback, you did not necessarily do the same things as other city children did. Most of our playtime was outside the fresh air, running around getting plenty of exercise, which I think was probably pretty normal for most children sitting in the country, but we couldn't visit our friends to play unless we planned to stay with them overnight or something. They were far too far away. I consider myself very fortunate in this respect, as I did have my youngest brother and our cousin. The later was not was a lot about more gammon than I was. Constantly was a leader in everything we did. She also had some friends from the city who used to come up and stay sometimes. I really was not a part of that. But when we were by ourselves, we did have some fun times. Television was introduced in the 1950s and 60s. We had a brand new set in the lounge room. Initially, we had the ABC. Some years later, local network Channel 4 began. All black and white. Today's viewing started with a good old test pattern before getting into the scheduled programming. Got news, of course, the weather, and some older programs in the very early days. Our telephone was a pretty party line, too. Stretchful was very, was only open at certain hours, so we had to make or take any calls in specified hours. Being a party line, there's always a chance that anyone connected, i.e. stations communities around, could hear and would be listening in. Reckon it was the best great line in the world. CWA, Country Women's Association, was a very strong in those days. In fact, it's always been a feature of women in the country, being both rural and remote. I understand my paranormal grandmother was one of the first presidents of our local branch, followed by mum. I've learned more recently than above mentioned. Cousin mother was also involved with CWA. 
but I think it must have been a different branch. Mum was a present, present for what seemed like forever to me. They even had a special hut, hell built, which remains to this day. Oh, now completely unused, as far as I know. I, I even tried to start the GCGA, Country Girls Association. One girl turned up, but only, but only because she had to come along with her mother to the CWT meeting. The CGA lasted one whole day. I never became friends with any of the other girls of my Asian district. Education provided a school there, ASOTA, based in Fort Augusta. This and the year got together. It was a lot of fun, and it was something to really look forward to it. It was time we got to meet face to face the other station children connected to that Scott A. Eh? In those days, the only time we saw them, and I had got a chance to play with them. You got together, and cl- got together, and could inevitably play. I was cast and married one year. That was wonderful. My parents were really were very proud of me, but not as I, that not that I realised it at the time. Too nervous. I was given the wrong words for singing. I found myself moaning the whole way through, and maybe heartily congratulated but afterwards. Maybe I missed my calling in life. While my memories of my Scott are not numerous, there are a couple that must bring to mind. Bob was one of them. Another one was my birth. On our birthdays, particularly, it fell on a weekend. At the end of the day, daily SWA lesson, students were allowed to share any news they had of anything they felt was important. Well, my birth is very important. Usually such occasions mentioned by the teacher, this has not happened on Friday, so I figured I needed to do something about it. So I did. The teacher responded, and she planned to mention it on Monday. Okay, I accepted that and thanked her. A few minutes later, however, I heard footsteps approaching down the veranda. They were heavy, fast, and were definitely on a mission. Mum, whoops, Mum listened into the radio lessons through the set in the lounge room. I would have heard me. Those footsteps meant I was in trouble. I was. I cannot recall what exactly happened, and I don't think I want to. All I know is that what kind of it kind of dampened my birthday somewhat. I dreaded this and listened on Monday, as I knew the teacher would would mention it. Invisible, the visible me by man, human titty. Introduction. I was born on a Hobbit summer's afternoon, April 27th, the place of my birth, Nigpa, lies precisely in the geographical centre point of India, a city famed for its oranges and hot summers. It's a hyperpole. To say the summer is Nigpa is equivalent to a furnace, where Mercury finds joy in hitting the maximum point. On my arrival outside the labour room, desperate but family members waited to hear my cries. Every passing second seemed like a century. I came on a hot summer's loom. My mother heaved a lot of relief. Her parched gullets searched for water. There were magical moments of my first-time parents, grandparents, 
on the other hand, frankly lingered outside the labour room to hold me. The joy elevated on holding me. With this, my saga of growing into a middle-aged, cl- middle-class Indian family started. When I was growing up, the typical middle-class family, three things occupy the centre stage, enjoying within the household budget, struggling whole life to get a good job, and marrying the right person. Miss these three dilemmas, I have some adventurous moments. I'm a bit lucky that my childhood was not totally devoid of venturous acts. I inherited inquisitiveness from my father. I remember those fun-filled days I learnt circling for the first time. I remember those charismatic fragments where my gang of friends embezzled mangoes from a nearby girl's hostel, running, folding, climbing, engineering, all composed my childhood memory book. My mother used to get de- deeper, desperate with my pranks, and frankly, looked for ways to hook me. My summer vacation brought Sazami t- 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 at home with a limited budget. One could only hope for reachable remedies. After failed search operations, my f- mother figured out that the storybooks and comics could grip me. She enthusiastically narrated many stories to me. Bedtime stories were filled with fantasies of kings, queens, witches, ghosts, aliens, centaurs, and so on. These stories made me laugh, cry, feel sad, on, uh, so on and forth. During school days, I was a bookish type, but that doesn't mean I refrained from mischief. I used to tag teachers with the characters and the stories told by my mother, like which aunt or ugly sister, or not for a sister, used to give her lots of homework. This helped me a lot. The satisfaction coming out of this process is astonishing. Jokes of heart, these stories, not only formed pillars of learning, but also turned out to be distress agents. Likewise, I took this heritage of tagging people forward into my workplace. In fact, the already burst appeared like an Egyptian ghost. A helpful, helpful office colleague appeared like an angel with a magic wand. Carousons lost their trail. Well, I realise that people and situations are not that easy to identify. At one time you realise that a vast zone of grey, subtle and hidden human nature lies between us and the two extremes of good and bad. The coding hidden trait is someone else's behaviour is avant task. You find you start finding it difficult to comprehend people, put them in extremes of social graces, menomania of applying this Fairy tales concept a real life situation fades. In these moments you feel like evolving out of that fairy tales facing the real world. Difficult people and situations do exist. Indicate situations coming in every shape, size, and variety in everyday life. You must be hearing that about situations where parents find it difficult dealing with a rebellious, defiant and adamant teenagers. Why bother me? And you don't give me advice or common dictators which parents hear nowadays. Making him accountable seems an hallucination. There are instances where husband and wife fail to coexist despite the magnitude of love with each other. Especially how ego and love can stay the same in the same mind. Emotional conflicts strain such relationships. It becomes risky to take your wife as a monster and share your same bedroom. Bit scary, the same fabric of family system 
is slowly being eaten away by the moss of ego and bigotry. Broken relationship, an easy life, set sail on a journey of boredom. Similarly, at the workplace, inscrutable, hidden nature of colleagues is puzzling. I accept the challenge to understand the dilemma of life, dear reader. In my pursuit of decode complex human behaviour, I came across a figment of nature which manifests itself in many situations, its deep roots in sabotaging relationships. I took the aid of practical stories to make some make others understand. This further propelled me to write this book. Here is this book. You will discode deeper truths about the secretive and emanating behaviour quite prevalent in individuals. Whenever you, you read a story, you come across protagonists, agitators, psychics, sceptics, and sometimes guardians. In my stories, lead characters are the ones whose actions and reactions drive the majority of the plot and come from different time zones, gender, demography, profession, mysterious and secret behaviour that runs common in these stories comes out, of its, out as an imposter. If it were interesting to find who emerges triumphant at the end of the and conquest's weakness. In real life situation these stories are will memorize you. In the end the awareness of this behaviour will help you combat challenges in your life, conquering your challenges, make you stronger for the future, with an aim to make you prepared for the unseen changes. I welcome you to read this, read The Night of the Raven The Earthlings W. L. Wright Chapter 1 This way, come on, you can do it. Rila could hear the voice and see the strong hand reaching out through the tunnel to wave her to be saved. She wanted to grab it, but she already knew trusting the wrong person could be deadly. Earth was ending and other planets were saving some, but they could not save everyone. The entire chaos escalated since the spaceships began arriving to save people on Earth. Before that, everyone either died, lived or died together, because there was no way out for anyone. People moved around, but eventually there, there was nowhere to go. Everything had been swallowed up, with holes growing larger and larger. There was nothing but swollen lava, where the whole entire cities once were. When the ships first arrived, people were afraid, not believing intent, fearing the worst. No one believed in life or in other planets. There were so many that when, when, when there were so many that were never did. Different ships from different galaxies landed sending messages out that they were there to save as many people from Earth as they could. When the first person left no one ever saw or heard from them again. So there was a risk, but it had come to the point it was the only chance of survival, and everyone's convinced almost at once that Earth was on its way to becoming a black hole. The tickets were given out for a giant lottery that erupted mostly in bright colours. Tickets for one were taken away by others, many dying just for winning one. In the time before Riella had booked, had a family member, mother and father, sister, brothers, but it was over and it's end of an unpleasant memory. She tried not to call. She never had time to grieve any of it. Survival was always at stake. She had already achieved, avoided many potential traps. She got a ticket from another kid called Trevor. He was on his own, too, it seemed, but, he, but hadn't made it. She was there until he died, 
dragged him to hiding, confronted him, comforted him. She was shocked when he handed over his, her his ticket. He thought he must have bit, have died trying to hold on to it, but never gave up. Leaving her him was difficult for her. A part of her wanted to sit quietly with him till it was over for her too. Everyone was after everyone else, looking for tickets of their own escape. There was no law, and all the left. There was the law of the jungle, and Rhea was surprised he had survived this long already, scraping by running from one hiding place to another, finding food anywhere, and drinking water without a thought of sickness from where it, it, where it was from. Since she got the ticket, she was trying to get to a ship, a ticket worked for any ship. You didn't know where you were going. You just knew you were going away from Earth. She was ready to try to make it to the next stop. As after her experience, anything seemed better than what she left on Earth. When it first started, no one really put it together. The Earth was ending. Big sinkholes started opening on the Earth all over the world. Politicians played it on cars, factories, while religion. Believed it on their guard, but no real change of anything ever happened. And Wheeler thought it was because no one really tried to do anything at all. He was just talking on top of, of more talking, everyone pointing fingers at everyone else. Come on, there isn't much time. If you don't grab my hand, I'm going, I'm leaving. She heard a deep voice above her saying his hand, trying to use its own language to urgency for her to grab it. She had take a lot of risk for so long before. So long, everything felt like one. Even now, where she is, where if she didn't grab the hand, she knew it probably wouldn't get out of here. There, she held her breath and grasped her the hand and was hoisted up helplessly. Do you have a ticket? The man standing in front of his hand, still holding her, said. Maria didn't didn't answer. She knew if she asked yes, she'd probably take it. Can you not close and whispered, I have one. If you have one, too, maybe we can each other get to a ship. Her face looked tired. His, his face looked tired. His dirty hair. His clothes tattered. His new fashion as a business looked long ago. And fashion was a distant thing of the past. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm sorry, kid. I'm sure you have been through a lot. We have. But if you're a kid, I see how it was. That would be. I'm amazed at any time I see a kid, you know. He said, looking at her sincerely, the dirt of his face, lighting up his green eyes. How old are you, Rico said. He laughed. Not as old as I probably look as you, to you, girl. I'm 17. And what are you, like 12, 13? He said, looking at her like a scientist investigating a flat root. I'm, I'm 15, actually, Rhea. Rhea said, giving him a smirk, and they both laughed. He felt aged like Rhea, since he had laughed at all. So what's your name? I'm Rhea. He answered, answered him now, feeling less nervous. He was about to te- that he was about to end her life. Nice to meet you, Rena. I'm Macbeth. Huh, yeah, right, both. Have we appearance, right? He said they both laughed together. See, Rena, do you have a ticket? He laughed again, and Rena felt her nervousness increase. Don't worry, he was mine. Macbeth said he unfolded a piece of paper rag. He wore his pants, revealing uh, the bright blue ticket edge. Yes, I do have a ticket, Rila replied. Sit, but seeing the truth revealed, and revealed her own ticket to Macbeth, turning her head to make sure that no one was paying attention. Great, let's get up the ship together. 
I don't know about you, but I'm sick of being alone. My breakfast, uh, said smiling at her, still holding her hand. Sounds good to me. And me too, really, replied as both began walking. The street was full of debris, business closed and looted by people, desperate to make it to another day. They both could see the ship in the distance. It, was, didn't, it wasn't close enough for either of them. Between them and the ship would be the most dangerous part of the journey. They were hunted for tickets, were plentiful of roads to the ships, waiting to pick up people from Earth. When we get a bit closer, we make a plan to get through, right? Looks like everyone seems to be looking for food, given up pretty much, Beth said after just a few steps, relieved her hand. They walked side by side now. Do you have any weapons? Freela asked hopefully. No, not at the moment. I had one. It was a great one, too. But I, the last fight I got, got in, they took it away from me. I'm lucky to be alive. After that one especially. Beth said his face. Uh, only thing of really the struggle of it. Oh, great. Well, it looks like we're going, uh, go, uh, we'll go, go it on our worlds. All I have been surviving on anyway. Rhea said we were gaining a confidence. They both, well, they would both make it to the ship and glad for the company. So, that's a, that's a planet you, f- you think the ship is from, Macbeth said, looking up. The ship was very large and blue in colour, breaking, beaming light from every angle, its triangle shape. I don't know, don't know. Do you know anything about about them? Rila asked to imply. She heard her stories, but the way things were, you couldn't believe anyone, it, it seemed. No, not really. I probably heard the, the stories you did, but not. But no one has ever come back to say who's right and who's wrong. I'd rather take my chances and ship but it sure don't look like there's any chance there. Macbeth replied pensively. Just as he said these words, a single sinkhole opened up in front of them. They both jumped back as it spread, and the others, not so fortunate, fell into the molten pit. Go, let's go into this way quick, Macbeth said as he grabbed her hand and began to run through the holes round the world's hedges, getting bigger and bigger. They were just about past it all when he slipped and almost fell with in taking Rhea with him. Rhea tugged his his hand. She she wanted fate to be tied to his. She made sure made it this far on her own and the ship was close enough to make it. He held it tighter but letting go as he ran ahead. Others were running now too, everyone on the road to survive race survive. I don't think she I think we should keep running now, Rhea. Rhea he said it kept the pace. Rhea yanked back at him, feeling they had passed the danger. What are you doing? He said, dropping her, stopping now and turning to look at her. Running wildly is not the safe land in my option, she said, and just as last word came out, she felt herself slipping. Looking back, she was surprised to see the hole gaping behind her as people screamed. Falling in, Macbeth held her hand tighter, pulled her forward. That was close, he said, gripping his dirty brow, wiping his dirty brow with the other hand. Now, what were you saying? He said with a smirk. Rita began running, pulling him forward without responding. Another close call, ending a life, moving on quickly. The feet were screaming to the death filled the air. Stop, stop, Macbeth said, pulling at her, trying to get her, her to stop running now. They were far away from the danger of the grow, grow, growing seagull. It stopped growing. They grew fast and stopped. 
that you must start growing again for within a few hours. Continuous for the whole area. Ria did not stop running, and she wanted to make it. She did not. She felt that like she had already run out of the nine lives. Finding her bare friend to her and grabbed her, stopping her. He strong, her strong arms, holding her. Listen, we're okay now. Stop running, he said, still holding her tightly. Ria struggled not to cry. She leaned, learned already any sign of weakness as a signal to others. She was easy prey to take things away from her. She pulled away and she released, he released her as, he, as she wiped her eyes. Dust, you know, those have no holes, he said, trying to hide her emotion through. Yeah, the dust has gotten to me a few times too, he stroked, really, really replied, smiling at, at her with a face of understanding and struggle. Wheeler turned and looked back, and the ship had looked a little closer now, but still not close enough. What's your plan when we get closer, she asked. I'm not sure, we'd better make one. I'm thinking we could try and see them before they see us. First of all, after we try to get by whoever it is without seeing them, me, us. There isn't a lot of cover here. I think as we get closer to where the ship is, you might there might be more. At least I hope there is. He's also looking at the ship suspended in air. That sounds good to me. Pretty much the plan. I've been uh, throughout all this. Stay hidden and out of sight, we said, sighing. Do you have any food? I don't have. I haven't found anything all day. My best said, looking at her with hopeful eyes. I have what's left of an apple I found in a tunnel I was in. It's brown looking, but I haven't gotten sick yet. You might have to rest if you want it, she said, putting her hand in her inside pocket, a long coat and pulling it out. Beth grabbed it. He hadn't eaten days. You sure that was not just yesterday? You haven't eaten, Rebecca said, watching him devour the brown apple. Regular saw the man approaching them. And then Beth tried to film himself at the apple. Look out, she said, and the man got nearer, raising his fist in the air. Get back! Beth shouted as he stepped forward towards him and swung his fist as hard as he could at the man hitting him. Square on the chin, the man fell to the ground. That's funny, he said, throwing the call to the floor and grabbing her hand and he started running. Wheeler followed, shot at his luck, his luck only one shot. Wheeler looked back and the man remained on the floor, looked out cold. Others were now moving towards him. They still were over a few things ahead. They aren't going to find any food, for that's a sure reader. That is thought as she turned back, back, looking forward again, keeping up with Macbeth's pace. He stopped them behind a burning, a building burning out from the previous riots and part of a succession of events before the spaceships arrived. Did you see something? Rhea said, shh. They're right there. I think they're in definite trouble. Macbeth said, whispering them and pointing below the waist towards the steps where the group of people were sitting. Rita looked at the group and saw that Macbeth saw. Each of them looked strong and violent, and the violence looked like their mentor. They all had weapons and made of them even truer. Thus, there was at least seven of them, and the two wouldn't have a chance against all these adults. What are we going to do? How can we get past them? Maybe we can go another way, Willis asked, looking around to another route she spoke. Maybe we can wait in the building until we move on. Hide here, like Beth said, looking into the rubble. Lost My Love, Homicide Series, Volume 1
Bhikarishima Yoga Gan Na Ra Sim Ha Prologue The sun paints her rising orange on a lonely evening at a villa stupendous. There sits Maria Pakara at the balcony, sipping hot lemon tea and talking to Pamod on the phone, greeting him good morning. The talk is sexual, as they have been away for a while now. Minutes later, sun disappears in the horizon and darkness takes over the place, with the crickets chirping in a creepy, monotonous tone. The call ends. Maria, Maya, takes a moment to finish her tea while she stares at the dark woods from her balcony with a book in one hand and an empty teacup on the other. She walks back into the kitchen to cook dinner. An hour later, her dinner's cooked. The clock ticks 8pm. She looks at the wall clock. She serves herself the meal and sits at the dining table, fiddling for notifications on the phone. Suddenly, it's nothing but sun accompanied with creaky crickets chirp. Author's note, driving into the world of imagination. I think I've created situation of revenge tales, one of which I started to weave a series of homicides, all linked to a series, single motive or character. This is the first book in a series of the reader. It's about experience of journey spun by a silent killer. A murder is in front of you is in the front, and yet so impossible to notice. I hope you enjoy reading and experience the factual mystery. Some of my work other work that I also write, don't forget to read horror files, poetry, which are now available on Amazon in your country. Do share your thoughts and comments on Amazon and Goodreads to help me write better and bring with you more interesting stories and captures your mind. Finding Medusa, The Making of an Unlikely Rockstar by Donna F. Brown Donna F. Brown's Finding Medusa takes you on a historical journey through the turbulent 60s of Chicago, the music, the drugs, as well as a personal journey for the darkest and brightest movements. From the first co-finding of Chicago rock band Medusa, I'm waiting 40 years for the release of their LP. First step beyond Medusa, finally secured a place in musical history, the second location of Medusa, 1975, Produced a new album, Rising from the Ashes, that led to several tours. At heart, the finding Medusa is a story of revelance of survival, of apt control of the pain. Donna F. Brown shares intimate details of a 40 year journey in a memoir that recalls important events of the 60s she experienced, including the 1968 Democratic Convention riots in Lincoln Park in Chicago, in which she saw friends and strangers alike lying beaten and bloody. She takes the reader for her experience with food, drugs, rock scene in Chicago in the 1970s, run-ins with authority, a difficult home life, a nursing career, a training as a rhyme with Michelle Misu, and ultimately return to Misusa, a music where it all started. Finding Medusa may make you laugh or make you cry, but you will most likely find in Donna's story deep connections to your own.